Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. On today's episode, we have LaShonda Sugg, LPC, owner, therapist, and consultant of Labors of Love. LaShonda is a therapist, trainer, and consultant. Gifted with the art of translating, she takes complex concepts and make them relatable and easy to understand. Her ability to create safety, along with her deeply profound insights and engaging personality, make her a highly sought-after trainer and counselor. Her passion is to help people heal and live fulfilled lives, and obvious through her work in both training and in the therapy room. LaShonda is also a certified trauma response therapist, certified in developmental and relational trauma therapy, and trained in EMDR. LaShonda's new book, The Heart of a Therapist, is available on her website. LaShonda also hosts her podcast, The Labors of Love. I'm so happy to have LaShonda on today's episode. Scars may tell the story of where you have been, but they do not have to determine where you are going. And this quote is by our guest today, LaShonda Sugg, LPC of Labors of Love Counseling and Consulting, and also of The Heart of the Therapist. Thank you, LaShonda, for being on FASD Hope today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. I am so happy to talk to you today. I I have so many questions for you. Let's start from the beginning. Can you share with us your background in the counseling profession and how you founded labors of love counseling and consulting? Absolutely. Um, So I worked in community mental health for quite some time. And uh, this was a return to what I didn't know at the time was my calling. Um, But straight out of I have a background from an education perspective, I was actually a general studies major in college because uh, I have eclectic interest and I don't like to be confined to boxes. (laughs) And so every major I found felt a little restrictive, but my concentrations in undergrad were psychology and theater. And uh, I, that propelled me into a lovely uh, first career of restaurant management. (laughs) So I started off as a restaurant manager. Why? Because I needed a job and I just felt that I was not fulfilled in that work in the sense that I wasn't doing what they were paying me to do. There was a lot of interest on the bottom line and numbers and my interests were in the, the relationships I had with my staff and the issues that they were encountering on a regular basis and being safe for them. So that led me out of that field and back into kind of a social service world. And I worked in a community mental health agency for numerous years when I was woken up probably at four o'clock in the morning um, and very distinctly heard God tell me I needed to go back to school. Well, I'm not a morning person. So uh, my first thought was, really, we're having this conversation at four in the morning? Uh, surely we could have talked about this at nine, God, right? Um, So I went back to sleep and I didn't think anything of it. Um, I actually forgot about it. And uh, maybe, I don't know, within a couple of months, I was sitting in church one day and um, my pastor was preaching about something. And all of a sudden he said something like, you know, you want a better career, but you don't want to go back to school. And he wasn't talking to me per se, but his words like reminded me that I had been woken up and I remember having a physical reaction like, oh my God, I remember that. And, and so it took me on this journey of like, wait, what and why and no. And if you wanted me to go back to school, why didn't you do this like a decade ago when I finished undergrad? And, you know, I always say that I do believe that I am God's comic relief on a daily basis. Um, 
and that he uh, never two hand pushes me into anything, but I always end up where I ultimately am supposed to be. And so I started the process of going back to school, never thinking, not knowing what to go back to school for. I want to be clear that I never thought I'm going to be a therapist at any point in my, in my trajectory. Um, but I did go back to school figuring whatever, I'll get this degree and it'll give me some letters that'll open some doors. And throughout the process, I really began to discover not only do I have um, a passion for helping people through the therapeutic process, but I'm actually very gifted in it. And so before I even completed my, uh, my studies and my degree, I had started at least on paper, Labors of Love. Uh, he gave me the name. He reminded me of a particular experience I had of where that name is rooted. It's very powerful. And, and so when I graduated in December of 2017, Labors of Love existed. And as soon as my license came in in February, I was off and running. So at the time, my purpose, I thought, was going to be to work with first responders, an expanded perspective of first responders, including therapists and social workers and teachers. Um, and that is still a thing in some ways, but I have morphed into families, really helping families uncover and address generational trauma. And then the other part of what I do is I do a lot of training um, for people so that they can understand what trauma is. They can understand how to build systems that help people build resilience and that they address their own trauma. So that's kind of the condensed version of how LOL came to be. I love that. And we'll talk about your book a little bit further into this episode, but I strongly believe as I've learned more about trauma and especially with working and parenting children, teens, adults with an FASD or other brain-based diagnoses, I've learned that there's layers of trauma. I've learned that it's, it's amazing that some things that we don't think about trauma you know, that were in our lives affect how we cope with trauma in others. Um, so let's talk about your work, your, especially when you started working with clients with trauma and just how that developed and how you became like the, the trauma go-to person. Yeah. So um, that's an excellent question. I truly believe my life uh, just prepared me for this work. I've, I've only worked with trauma in my professional career. Now to start, when I worked at this community mental health agency, it was an organization uh, in the branch I worked uh, starting out that was for adolescent boys. It's a residential program, adolescent boys um, with sexual behavior problems. And so all of them had experienced trauma. So I would say my first uh, acknowledgement of seeing trauma play out was working with these young men. And um, I was with that agency for a long time. I continued to switch different jobs. And I eventually had a position or got a position um, in a training position. And dedicated specifically to providing trainings for the organization or the agency. And I was sent to a training about trauma. And at that point, this was a while ago, this was, you know, uh, whew, you know, over a decade ago where the word trauma felt kind of buzzwordy. Um, not a whole lot of people could define it for you, but everyone knew that, you know, they should know something about it. And so I was sent to this training and I'm sitting in the middle of this medium-sized auditorium and the name of the training at the time was called uh, Children of Trauma. And I'm sitting there and taking notes and doing all these things. And somewhere in the midst of that training, I started to get hot and warm and I felt like a spotlight was on me and I couldn't understand what was happening. And it's the first time that I realized that I was a child of trauma, that I had a considerable amount of trauma in my life. And at the time I was seeing a therapist and I remember going to my laptop on the break or after the training was over that day, cause it was a several day training and just typing him this email of like, wait, so is this trauma? And is this trauma? And is this trauma? And it shook my world. And so uh, I went on this journey of healing my own trauma. And it is through that work that I truly realized that one healing is possible. Um, even if I didn't know at some point that I needed something to be healed from. Um, and then I began to 
do other work. When I went back to school, you don't really learn a whole lot about trauma in grad school, even as a therapist, to be honest. Um, a lot of this work is extra, extra time, extra money, extra resources. And my mentor that I did my internship with, a year-long internship, is Mary Vicario. And she is a prominent trauma specialist in the tri-state area. And she took me under her wing and I learned so much about trauma, uh, neuroscience and neurodevelopment and all of these different things. And so that really launched me into knowing I wanted to work specifically with trauma, but that was mainly my training side. It's when I began uh, training in developmental and relational trauma therapy uh, through Healing Our Core Issues Institute that I truly took a headfirst dive into my own healing. And it's such a comprehensive model that it's the way I view the world now. And that is where I realized not only do I wanna help people who have experienced trauma, but felt extremely confident and competent that I would be able to help them arrive at some true healing and sustained healing in their lives. Wow, so your healing process and your healing journey obviously helped you and helped you to move forward, but it is lived experience that you as a counselor, as a therapist, you're able to empathize with your clients and you're also able to use that as as a tool to help others. Do you find that through your own experience of experiencing trauma and working and healing your trauma, do you find that many other colleagues and professionals in the field of therapy, especially with trauma, have experienced their own trauma? Uh, That is a resounding yes. (laughs) Yes, yes, and more yes. Um, Oftentimes, it is our lived experiences that drive us in in the various directions that we find ourselves, and that includes our career. And so, yes. And to that point, um, I wouldn't say I'm pivoting. I'm not really pivoting, but what I'm trying to do is narrow my lanes. I, I like to say I've been driving across a, f- I've been driving down a five lane highway for a really long time. And I really like to narrow that down. And one of the particular passion points, but also gifting points that I have is working with other clinicians to address their own trauma. And by and large, yes especially when we think about developmental trauma and we think about relational trauma, um, to define that a little bit more, essentially what it means is that what we experience in our past directly influences how we show up in the present. And so I talk about templates and how I define a template is it's the world is the beliefs, the worldviews and the behaviors that emerge from growing up in our family systems and our social structures. So a belief being something that you uh, hold is true or it's a thing. So we have all kinds of beliefs, many of them unconscious, many of them conscious. A bunch of beliefs kind of come together that forms a worldview. How we look at the world to be reality and our behaviors emerge out of those worldviews. And so what I do is I help people look at what they learned explicitly and implicitly growing up and saying, so if that's what you learned, how did that influence how you showed up in the world as a young person, as a child, you know, as an adolescent, but how is it impacting how you show up in the world now? And so working with clinicians to help them discover and address these things is so important because in essence, not only am I helping them find healing, but when we don't heal, as people in the helping profession, we hurt people, even if we don't mean to. Our unaddressed wounds end up showing up in the counseling space or in the social work room or whatever capacity, the hospital room, if we're a nurse or a doctor, whatever capacity, a law enforcement officer, those wounds show up. And what those wounds do is they're attached to these inner children we have that are still very much alive. And, you know, I don't want a 10-year-old doing surgery on me. I don't, I don't want a nine-year-old giving me therapy. You know, I don't want a 12-year-old um, enforcing law with me. And so I am very specifically driven to helping those in the helping professions to identify, address, and heal from this trauma that they've experienced um, because it's important for the well-being of those we serve. And this trauma 
to be fair, is not an event or a series of events. We're not going back to say that one thing you can identify that was quote unquote traumatic because no one knows what that means really anyway. We all have different definitions, but in fact, the template is the trauma. The person whose parents were not as attentive as they needed to be so that that child felt valuable and loved just as they were. That child then had to go on and say, well, my parents notice me when I perform and when I get good grades. And so that child grows up to be an adult who is so accomplishment focused that they only feel like they have worth when they're excelling or accomplishing. That matters. Those are the things that we explore. You know, the child who was never learned that they could say no because they weren't allowed to say no within their family structure or ask questions. Well, that's the adult who grows up and they get into, let's say, romantic relationships that are abusive, but they don't have the muscle of saying no or I get to leave. That's the kind of things I'm talking about. So absolutely, so many people have had trauma and so many people in the helping profession have. That's why they are where they are and I want to help them address it. Wow. LaShonda, what a calling that you are following and and just what a path that you are following in helping others. I'm just, I'm blown away. And I believe that's going to, I'd like to really tie that in to what we're talking about today is with trauma and FASD. Because um, the, the way that I think about it is that having a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is essentially having trauma from prenatal alcohol exposure. And then I see a ripple effect as when the family or caregivers or teachers don't recognize that as a brain-based disability, but instead they view it as bad behaviors, you know, being unwilling to do something. I, I see there's layers of trauma in FASD. And also as, as a parent, I think what you're talking about is is especially true that as parents and caregivers, we have to address our own trauma and heal and and develop healing and, and coping techniques with our own trauma to be better parents to our child, our children, our teens, our young adults that have both trauma from before birth and then trauma after birth. So what you're saying is just resonating so much with me and especially with what I like to call my mama bear heart, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So when did you first become aware of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and, and your experience with, with FASD? I'm going to tell you, uh, Natalie, it's very recent. Um, There is such an overlap like you were just expressing between um, trauma and how it manifests and uh, the fact that having an FASD diagnosis or even if it's not diagnosed is part of a traumatic cycle that I've come in contact with some people like Aubrey Page, right? And we have some mutual connections. Um, One of our friends, um, in trauma work and she connected us. And so I can be very honest and say it is um, by name, it's very new to me. But as I've learned more and talked more, it is in essence kind of part of what I have been saying for so long, which is we are very much a culture that is see it to believe it. And even when we see it, we don't believe it because we're looking at it through one lens. And FASD is one of those unseen things that happened or as part of a person's life that we make value judgments based on them when we don't know what's happening inside. So the more I learned, the more I realized that a vast number of youth that I worked with when I was in community mental health more than likely had had needed an FASD diagnosis. Um, needed to be looked at from that perspective. And their actions were perceived as oppositional or defiant. They were quote unquote bad kids. And I knew then that that wasn't accurate. Um, Through my trauma work, I have now developed a, a more vast and expansive language to help people understand that. But it was very awesome when I began to come in contact with Aubrey uh, specifically, when her and I would have discussions about how, if you don't understand FASD, then you're going to come from a trauma of 
approach, which is helpful and good, but still falls short of meeting the needs of the youth, the children, and even the adults um, who have FASD. And that has been a very enlightening and appreciated uh, continuation of my journey. And as both a parent and a parent advocate in the FASD community, I am so thankful that you are part of our community, that you understand and you have learned about FASD and, and you are an, uh, you're a valuable resource in our community because people that are parenting, those who are parenting or caregiving or teaching individuals, kids, young adults, teens with an FASD can go to you and, and listen to your podcast or, you know, read or consult with you about how there is both that exposure, the prenatal alcohol exposure, which causes trauma in the brain prior to birth. And then the traumas that are like rippling, the ripple effect of traumas that happen afterwards and how we can be more trauma informed in our parenting. So I'm so thankful that you are, you're in this community uh, in, in FASD and that I see it as only a growth of, you know, you helping us and us learning from you. So why do you think it is so important for parents, caregivers, and teachers and other professionals to understand the difference between an FASD, which is a, a prenatal alcohol exposure trauma to the brain versus trauma that can occur after birth from life events? Thank you. That's an excellent question. And I think one of the primary reasons is what I like to describe as hardware versus software. So um, we've been doing a lot of work virtually over the last several months. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. And when people began to transition to distance learning and distance working, um, for example, Zoom is a platform that's heavily used. And what would happen is uh, it would lag, um, the, the picture would freeze. It just wasn't, um, yes, it wasn't acting right. And so many people were getting very frustrated with Zoom. Like, Zoom was not cooperating. And what in actuality was happening was a lot of people hadn't updated their computers in a really long time. And so the fact that they had not updated their hardware, their computer, the software, Zoom, was not um, functioning the way that it was optimal and was helpful to the person using it. And I like to think about um, FASD in that way that we are looking at the behavior of children or young adults, that's Zoom. But when we don't realize that the hardware, there's something that is impacting the hardware, then we're gonna continue to use very uh, maladaptive and unhelpful practices like shaming um, and unrealistic expectations that come with unrealistic consequences to alter the behavior Zoom, when really we need to understand that there are certain things in the hardware that are not going to function optimally. Therefore, Zoom is sometimes not going to function optimally. Doesn't mean it's not going to function at all. And so for me, that's an analogy that really gets to the heart of um, FASD, which is hardware-based. The, the exposure, the prenatal exposure to alcohol has impacted how the brain and other systems of the body, but the brain developed in utero. And it continues to impact how that child will engage with the world. Now, to be fair, postnatal trauma also impacts brain development. But there are certain aspects of the brain that have already been developed when the when postnatal trauma happens. And so with the prenatal exposure, that development is so early on that very literally the way that that child is going to be able to engage with the world is altered. Um, and so I think that's important for people to understand because that begins to help us mitigate our expectations. And not just our expectations, but hopefully it puts us in a position to um, have empathy and understanding in a way that's simply assessing a person by their output. Whether, whether it's their behavior, their tone of voice, their language, their uh, academic abilities, 
um, that stunts our ability for empathy because we have a perceived uh, narrative in our mind. And when someone doesn't meet that narrative, then, you know, the first option that most people come to is there's something wrong with that person. And I'm hoping that this expands people's understanding of that. Awareness breeds choice. I say that all the time. And without awareness, people engage the way they think they have to. So that means when a child is disruptive, if I am not aware of why the child is disruptive, then I am left to kind of only the choices I think I have, which is to punish or berate, or essentially I have to make that person do what I want them to do. And I think if we're honest, so much of parenting, so much of educating through teaching and things like that. So much of so many of our systems, our law enforcement system, our current, all of it is control-based, power over. A person in authority is going to exercise their authority and often their stature and often all of their skills to manipulate the behavior of another person. And so I'm, I'm advising and helping people to look at the power of power with and that power over. How do I step alongside, uh, this person to help them accomplish what they need to accomplish. So much of this I learned from my mentor, Mary Vicario. Um, and how do we have power with others, regardless of their ability level? And I think if we start to look at this in that way, how we show up for people matters and it begins to shift because we realize that it's not power we need to take, um, it's power we need to give. And I think that's a big difference. Your analogy is just so relatable and tangible in so many different ways. What I'm taking away from it is that we need to recognize the brain trauma and how it has affected that individual's daily life in every sphere of that person's life. And as parents and caregivers and teachers and professionals, we cannot make that child or individual change. We have to accommodate. We have to, like you said, we have to eliminate our expectations, make accommodations and readjust our expectations. And I think most importantly, we need to learn. It is us that needs to learn. We, we can't change the person who is wired differently. Like you said, what we need to do is meet them where they're at and also accommodate and not induce any more trauma because of the way that they're, they're wired. However, adjust our expectations and realize that how we parent or caregive or teach is, needs to be altered to meet their needs. Am, am I translating that right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that was that was right on. I think accommodations become easier when we address our own relational and developmental trauma. What I mean by that is sometimes it's hard for parents and caregivers and professionals to really loosen their, not even loosen, but to really mitigate their expectations to reasonable for each individual person that they're engaging with, because we think our expectations are like um, birthrights. <laughs> we think they are, they're, that they are owed to us. And it's very interesting when I talk with professionals and parents, and we talk about the word respect. That's one of the biggest ones, right? I will not be disrespected. You will not disrespect me in my home. You will not disrespect me in my classroom. And when we start to tease out, very fair, tell me, what is respect? You're going to get, if you ask 10 people, you're going to get 10 different definitions and they are all rooted in their families of origin and their, the systems that they grew up in. Whether it's, I grew up in a very chaotic and abusive household and I refuse to repeat that. So these are my expectations or this is what it looked like. And so I'm carrying that forth. To be fair, I'm not suggesting that people have to completely scrap their definitions and that it needs to be a free for all, whatever that means to that person. But what I am saying is people have so little understanding of how much they parent 
based on their own parenting, based on how they were parented. So many parents are parenting to please their parents. They don't even realize it. Or they're parenting to do the opposite of what their parents did. In either event, it doesn't take a very measured, intentional look at what's the outcome I want and how do I, how do I achieve it? So they get caught in the output instead of looking at motivation and intention and ability. And, and that is where we get hung up as adults and systems that are working with children in general, but especially with children who have an FAS, FASD diagnosis or maybe have experienced significant trauma. I'm nodding while you're talking because that is something my husband and I had to do personally in our journey uh, with our son who is now 18 and has an FASD. We learned, especially over the past few years, that we learned what our, what we grew up with in parenting was really affecting how we were parenting our son, which was not working, you know, and, and how it was making our situation worse because we were bringing in our own expectations through how we were parented. So one of the first steps we did was take training to better learn how our son's diagnosis was brain-based and how to parent in a neurobehavioral or brain-based approach. Uh So what are some other steps that parents and caregivers and families can take in healing and breaking that cycle of trauma, especially if you are parenting or working with a child that has a prenatal alcohol exposure or trauma prior to birth? Yeah, I I think that's an excellent question. And one of the simplest ways that I think I've been able to conceptualize it is talking about the power of the pause, P-A-U-S-E, the power of the pause. We have a tendency as people to be very reactionary and very quick in our response to just life. And I want to acknowledge that in a lot of ways that has contributed to the survival of our species for this long. (laughs) We have to lump things together. Our brain does that for us. um, And we have to respond very quickly so that we survive. And we can get into that habit relationally that sometimes doesn't give us enough time to pause and really explore what's happening in the moment. So something that I frequently say is that we are constantly having current interactions with historical experiences. And so that means that we aren't really looking at what's in front of us in the moment. Our brain has compiled a compilation of previous experiences that look, smell, taste, feel, and sound like what's happening right now. And it kind of skips the exploration of the moment and gives gives us an automated response. That's how the brain works. If we recognize that, again, awareness, then we realize that we have a choice. We don't have to go with that gut response. We can learn to pause. And in that pause, I think there are very helpful things that we can do. One, we can take a deep breath, a very deep breath that, requ- that means our exhale is going to be longer than our inhale. When we do that, we activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which simply means the part that allows us to relax and to um, get the part of our brain that's thinking oriented back online. And once we do that, we can assess the moment for what does this person need? What is my child's behavior communicating? Not how I feel about it, not what it's triggering or activating, not whether or not it's disrespectful, respectful, appropriate, inappropriate words we like to use, but literally saying, All behavior has a meaning and it's designed to meet a need. What does this person need right now? And if we can get in the habit of building that muscle, then our response to our child or whatever person we're talking to can move towards meeting the need and not exacerbating the need. And um, I'll give an example. My son has seasonal allergies that manifest as asthma in the fall and winter months. And uh, a couple of years ago when this was very new for all of us, he burst into my room in the middle of the night. So it's already like, I'm scared. I woke up and he's like, I can't find my inhaler. 
And <laughs> I did not take the power of the pause. <laughs> and I am like, you know, I'm so out of wits. And it's like, why are you yelling? Why didn't you put it where, where is, you know, it's this whole thing, right? Why, why isn't it where it should have been? And that of this whole thing. And he like storms out and I'm frustrated. So I'm following him. Well, in hindsight, it's like, girl, first of all, he can't breathe. <laughs> he is having trouble breathing. There's not a single person on the planet who wakes up out of their sleep having difficulty breathing and is going to think, how can I go into my mom's room and be respectful as possible? That's not what was on his mind. This was survival. And so I realized that in all of my accusations and how I was talking to him, I was exacerbating the problem because he still couldn't breathe. <laughs> so ultimately I did. I helped him find the inhaler, which was in plain sight. And they could have further frustrated me. Well, it did at the moment, like it's right here. But when your brain is searching for oxygen, what it's not doing is calm, cool, collected, looking for things, right? So that whole situation, as I played it back, I had to go to my son and apologize and say, I'm so sorry. I was woken up and it scared me. And I went into this automated response. You didn't do anything wrong. I, I'm sorry that that's it. And so that moment was really pivotal for me to say, even when I'm woken up, I, at the adult with the skills that I'm developing, have to get control of myself to pause, take a deep breath. And then when he has on numerous occasions after that, not been able to find his inhaler because he hasn't put it back where it belongs in the midst of him not being able to breathe, it's not the time to have that conversation. It's not the time to try to police his tone of voice. It is to give him what he needs. He needs to be able to breathe. And once we're after that, we can go back and revisit. Let's revisit where we're going to put your inhaler. But it also meant I'm not going to continue to put an expectation on at that time. He was like nine, a nine-year-old to be so responsible. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have an extra inhaler. Yes, I want to help him develop the skill of putting it back. But until he masters that, why don't I have one where I know where it is so we can mitigate the immediate problem, breathing, and then we can continue to build that. So that's just an example of there are numerous things that my, my younger self and me rose up and was like, who does he think he's talking to like that? You know what that was? I never could have talked to my parents like that, no matter what. So again, I'm parenting based on how I was parented and I'm getting all flustered when the reality is he had a need and his behavior was simply an expression of that need. So that's the big thing. Power of the pause, take a deep breath, assess the need, meet the need. And you'll find that we don't go on these long drawn out experiences with our kids that can be avoided if we just understood that they were trying to meet a need. I think this is amazing. And I would love it if you turned this into a class or a course or something, because I think so many parents would benefit from learning your insight and your experience. And you, you just, oh my goodness, you're so spot on in that we have to meet the needs of our children and we have to just heal our previous traumas or experiences or things that are in our brain so that we can properly meet the need. I, it's almost like triage, I would, I would think. It's almost like, you know, an emotional or a triage where, okay, what's the need? What are we meeting? Putting everything aside and, and just being objective. And then, like you said, dealing with the emotional experience that comes with that at a, at a different point, at, at a mm -hmm. different um, time. I, I, oh my goodness, LaShonda, this is so valuable. You're, what you have shared is just, I pray that so many people hear this and, and can just let it sink into their core and help them to, to change and, and meet their child or teen or young adult or even adult where they're at, at that developmental age versus the chronological age, mm -hmm. which we especially know is, is a primary characteristic of, of having an FASD. So LaShonda, how can we better care and regulate ourselves, especially through trauma um, that we've experienced when we are parenting or caregiving or teaching that child, teen, young adult that has a trauma that's occurred 
both prenatally and as well after birth? I think one of the most effective things that I've been able to do myself and share with other people is the awareness that we have inner children that still live and are very active within us. And they are part of us. Um, They sometimes take over without our permission. um, And they are kind of that automatic response that I was talking about. I think why this is important is because we are sometimes at odds with our inner children who need reparenting and the children that we're raising who need to be parented. And we don't even realize we're caught in a tug of war. I think when we begin to acknowledge our own selves and all that we are and those inner children, we can give them what they need so they don't interfere and try to parent our children. And so what I mean by that is I can give an example of um, my inner nine-year-old. My inner nine-year-old had an experience where she was stung by nine bees. I was stung by nine bees when I was a little girl. Um, and kind of a long story, but ultimately what happened, I was at a friend's house and some neighbors had thrown bee, uh, rocks at a beehive throughout the day. I didn't know that. And as I was walking down the street, I was attacked by a swarm of bees. And so my parents were called, they came to pick me up. And, um, when I got there, uh, it was recommended by my friend's family that I go to the emergency room to make sure no stingers were still in there, that I wasn't allergic to bees or anything. And, on the drive to the hospital, my mom said, um, you probably got stung because you got all that gel in your hair. <laughs> so for context, I was not allowed to really alter my hair at home. But when I was at my friend's house, her mom was very more, much more permissive. So I had like slicked my hair back using gel. And well, that's ridiculous. I did not cause myself to be stung by a swarm of bees. But that was a pivotal imprinting moment in my life. So going forward, that little girl always lived in me and she interprets almost every situation as I've done something wrong. So when I have any regular interaction as a almost 40 year old woman, if I come into something where something doesn't go as planned or whatever it is, that part of me is in my, not just in my mind, but in my body going, oh no, we've done something wrong. What did we do? It must be our fault. I have had to make connection and contact with her. I've had to tell her, sweetie, listen, I understand that it feels that way. It is not your fault. That was not your fault. And this, this is not our fault. There's no fault here. You are loved. You are valued. I see you. I hear you. She needs from me what she needed at that moment, but she didn't get. And again, it's not blame and shame of my parents. I, you know, I think my mom was probably going through a whole lot at the time. I can hold both that she didn't intentionally do that, but that it still impacted me. Why that matters is if I'm parenting my child, and I'm just talking about my child, who I will admit is pretty neurotypical and, you know, does not have exacerbated needs due to extensive trauma or an FASD, but still, as I'm parenting my child, something comes and that little nine-year-old is like, we did something wrong. We, it's our fault. We're a horrible parent. And, and if, I'm, if I don't recognize that she's there, my interactions to either move into that space and, you know, sink down and shrink and shame in front of my child or to puff up and go super strong to prove that I didn't do anything wrong and you're not going to take over me, whatever the response is on that continuum and everywhere in between. If I don't know that there are these parts of me that are driving me based on their unmet needs, then I parent my child that I'm raising from a place that has nothing to do with them. And so I think what I would offer to parents, especially, and teachers and professionals, is you have to do this work if you want to actually parent your child based on what they need and not what you need. And it's so nuanced that without actual exploration and help, we think we're doing it. And we would even say, I'm doing the best I can. And I will say, you're well-intentioned. But the best you can is addressing the unmet needs that you still have so that you're not taking it out on your children, even if you don't realize you're doing it. 
I'm just going to keep saying, wow, because <laughs> I, I listen to your responses and they just, they just sink in my heart. They just resonate with me. Um, so we really need to acknowledge our vulnerability and our experiences. And it sounds like to me, you know, being a woman of faith, it sounds like we need to talk to our nine-year-old child the way God would talk to us. Yes. Saying you are valued, you are worth, you are loved. And that really is a transformation. And I think that's a transformation that you have to be vulnerable and you have to be humble. And I think that, like you said, as parents and caregivers, we got to put the puppy chest down and, and the, oh no, you know, this is not going to happen. And, and we have to not only address our vulnerability and our experiences that give us that negative tape in our head that, that, you know, comes up often, but we also have to recognize that that is also going to impact how we parent and caregive children. One last question about the cycle of trauma. What is your what is something that you've really learned that you just want to communicate about the cycle of trauma and how we can break it or how we can change it? I think one of the most powerful things I've learned is that it can be one moment that I think when we think about breaking generational trauma cycles um, or even our own patterned traumatic uh, responses that we think of a complete overhaul of who we are, maybe a personality, and we have to change this big thing. But it literally can be one moment um, from a parenting perspective, allowing my children to ask me why has been pivotal in changing a cycle that I had to learn not to perceive their why as. Uh, disrespect or them trying to undermine my authority, but literally them wanting information. When I was able to just simply reframe that and allow them to ask me why, I, I changed a cycle in myself and in my family and in the trajectory of my children's lives. And so it can be a small thing. And I wholeheartedly am encouraging people to make small changes. And when we look up, those small changes have big impact. Yes, we have to acknowledge that, that what we may think is just a small change is actually going to have what I like to call the ripple effect. And it's going to have a greater effect on those around us, especially when when we're parenting, caregiving for a child or an individual that has a brain-based diagnosis or an FASD. So LaShonda, let's talk about this wonderful book, which is a compilation of, of, of different journeys, The Heart of a Therapist. Can you tell me the story behind it? Yeah. So The Heart of a Therapist is an anthology and a compilation of 10 different therapists and their stories of how they came into the uh, helping profession and how they help others. And very honored to be a part of this book, mainly because I hold that story matters. It really does. Um, Our individual stories, everyone has one and it matters. But scripture also tells us that people are able to overcome by the words of our testimony. And so it really is a book of testimonies um, of 10 different therapists from very different places, walks of life and specialties that have come together to share their story and testimony of how they've overcome and how they help others overcome. So it's um, a fantastic book and I'm so very honored to, to be part of it. And you can find this book on our FASDHope.com website, which will, uh, you'll see LaShonda's book, and then it'll have a link to LaShonda's website where you can purchase the book. So I pray that this book will be in many hands and people will learn from all these testimonies. And I agree 100%. And I believe that's why my husband and I started this calling of FASD Hope, because we believed that the Lord put us on this journey for a purpose and that not only our story was meant to be shared, but so many other stories that are related to FASD, that are related to trauma, those stories need to be shared. And amen to that scripture. Yes, I 100% believe that our stories were meant to be shared. LaShonda, this has been amazing. And 
Will you come back on our show? I would love to have you back on uh, to talk about the book more and just, just to talk with you more. Would you, uh, <laughs> would Absolutely. you be a guest again? Oh, it has been such I would love it. a pleasure. And I have learned so much in talking with you. So I'm going to let LaShonda share how you can reach out to her and get in touch with her at Labors of Love and also uh, her podcast. LaShonda is um, out there. And LaShonda, if you can share your contact information, that would be wonderful. Absolutely. Um, so uh, my website is a catch-all for any way you want to get in touch with me. And that is www.thelaborsoflove.com. From my website, you're able to access all of my social media. We're on all the major social media outlets. Um, our YouTube channel, um, you can access our YouTube channel from my website. There's a tab that says videos. Every Thursday, I do a Therapy Thursday video, which is about four to six minutes of just relevant information that hopefully inspires hope and gives people information about relationships, mental health, or trauma. Um, I do have a podcast, the Labors of Love podcast, that's on all the outlets where you get your podcasts. Um, and from there, you can also, there's a contact form. So if you just wanted to contact me directly, it allows for you to get a message directly to me. And I'm pretty good at responding. Fantastic. And I can say that I am following LaShonda. I recently subscribed to her podcast. I'm so excited to learn from them, as well as just knowing you, LaShonda. It's such a blessing. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being on our show today and for educating us and uh, enlightening us. Any final hope takeaways that you can leave us before we sign off? My hope takeaway is that people understand that it's hard. It really is challenging, period. Living can be challenging. It can be. Parenting can be challenging. And that can only be exacerbated um, if you're challenging a child or a young adult um, with an FASD. And so my hope is that maybe something you heard today gives you further hope that there's nothing wrong with you that there are experiences that you've had that are possibly making parenting more challenging, but that does not have any bearing on your value. You are still a valuable person and a valuable parent and that there are resources out there to help you work through these things so that you can meet your needs while also meeting your child's needs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. LaShonda, it has been an honor a pleasure, and I have learned so much from our conversation today. Thank you again for being on our show. Thank you, Natalie. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember, to be informed, take care, and always have hope.